Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Published in 1912 and written by Grenville A.J. Cole, this story looks at rocks and where they came from. I must say, it is the perfect story to help bore you to sleep. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you and get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everybody who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. Firstly, a massive thank you needs to be sent to the two new patrons for this week. Thank you, Lisa Ingram, for becoming a $5 patron. I'm glad the podcast is helping you and your dog. And thank you also to Belinda Nemeth for becoming a $5 patron. Your monthly contributions are an amazing compliment and allow me to bring out more episodes for you and those who need it. Thank you also to those who reached out on social media. Thank you to Jolie for your mention on Instagram. And thank you to Suzanne for your recommendation on Twitter. For all other listeners out there who find the podcast beneficial, I have a favour to ask of you. Please leave a review and comment in iTunes or your podcast app, or leave the show a rating in Spotify. If you would like, you can also say hello at boyyoutosleep.com, where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boyyoutosleep. You can find me on Facebook by searching Boy to Sleep Podcast. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Rocks and Their Origins by Grenville A.J. Cole This little book is intended for those who are not specialists in geology and may perhaps be accepted as a contribution for the general reader. To all who are interested in the earth, the study of rocks is an important branch of natural history. If detailed works on petrology are to be consulted later, F. W. Clark's data of geochemistry must on no account be overlooked. Its numerous references to published papers and the attention given to rock origins make it a worthy companion to see Dalter's petrogenesis. Many things have perforce been omitted from the present essay. It seemed unnecessary to review the carbonaceous rocks since the most important of these have been admirably dealt with in E.A.N. Arbor's Natural History of Coal, published as a volume in this series. I should like to describe occurrences of rock salts, of massive gypsum, 
and are the products of arid lands, where black alkali poisons the surface, and the casual pools are fringed with white and crumbling crust. Rock taluses and all the varied alluvium carried seaward, as the outwash of continental land well deserved a chapter to themselves. But there is really no end to the subject, which embraces all the accumulative processes of the earth. A few vacation journeys, judiciously planned out, teach us that textbooks are merely signposts to set us on what is believed to be the way. When the path enters the great forest, or rises above green lakelets to the crags, we find there those who went before us, pointing to unconquered lands. Chapter 1 The description of rocks has fallen very much into the hands of lovers of analysis and classification, and attention has been diverted, even among geologists, from their fundamental importance as parts of the Earth's crust. The geographer or the general traveller may often wish for closer acquaintance with the units that build up the scenery around him. The characters of rocks again and again control the features of the landscape. When studied more nearly, these same characters imply conditions of deposition or solidification and lead the mind back to still older landscapes and to the meeting of oceans and continents on long-forgotten shores. Petrology, indeed, involves the understanding of how rocks come to be where we find them when we try. But the classification of hand specimens was from the first easier than field investigation, and in later times the science was threatened with the description of isolated microscopic slides. Fortunately, a certain amount of feeling for natural history has been imported again into the subject, and evolutionary principles and sequences have been discussed. Experimental work, moreover, has been brought to bear on the question of the origins of rocks, with more success than might have been expected, since it is very difficult to realise in a laboratory, or even in the mind, the conditions that prevail in the lower parts of the Earth's crust. Rocks, we have to remember, are in themselves considerable masses, and have relations with others far away. The coarseness of a sandstone at one point, or even over square miles of country, implies the deposition of finer material somewhere else. The lava flow implies the existence of mysterious cauldrons in the crust. It is, however, fortunate that the primary classification of rocks was promulgated without regard for theories of rock origins. The work was done by men who were masters and pioneers in mineralogy, 
at a time when a powerful school regarded basalt as a sedimentary origin, and when granite was generally believed to be the most ancient component of the crust. Rock masses were taken in hand as aggregates of certain minerals, and were reduced to an orderly scheme for arrangements in the cabinets of the curious. Any system based on ideal relationships would have been fatal at that time to petrology as a science. Alexandre Brongniart, in 1813, thus saw objections to the classification of rocks that had been proposed by Werner in his essay Dune, Classification Mineralogy, he showed the impossibility of determining the age of a rock in relation to others before assigning it a name, and the absurdity of separating similar rocks on account of differences in their geological age. Brognat was thus forced to rely, firstly upon the prevalence of certain mineral constituents, and secondly, on the structure of the mass. He developed this scheme in 1827 in his classification of mineralogy, but it is clear that even in such a system, considerations of natural history and of origin will ultimately predominate. The difficulty of distinguishing between rocks laid down as true sediments on the Earth's surface and those that have consolidated from a state of fusion has been very largely removed. The assistance of the microscope can now be called on to elucidate the minute structure of fine grained masses, which appeared homogeneous to earlier workers. The pioneer in microscopic methods was Pierre-Louis Antoine Cordier, who knew rocks as a traveller knows them in the field. In 1798, as a young man of 21, he had gone to Egypt with the famous exhibition under General Bonaparte. Diodat de Dolomieu had charge of the geological observations, and Codier went through the hardships of the campaign as his assistant. When Bonaparte abandoned the army and withdrew to Paris, Cordier might well have been lost to Europe. However, he successfully brought home the knowledge acquired in the field and set himself in those agitating years to solve the problem of the compact groundwork of Virginius rocks. He argued that his groundwork probably consisted of minerals and that these minerals were probably similar to those occurring as visible constituents of the mass. He examined the powder of these larger crystals under the microscope and made himself familiar with their aspect in a fractured form. He then powdered the compact material of his rocks, washed away the dust, and was able to recognise in the course of residue the minerals that he had previously studied. He used the magnet to extract the iron ore. He determined the fusibility of the particles 
with the blowpipe, and he even discovered in volcanic lavas a residual glass associated with the crystalline material. To this day, when a particular mineral has to be determined in a rock, it is often best to follow Cordier's method and to extract the actual crystals, however small. Various modes of separation, especially those involving the use of dense liquids, have been devised since Cordier's time, and the specific gravity of a single crystal can now be determined. Between 1836 and 1838, Christian Gottfried Ehrenberg, professor of medicine at Berlin, made an immense step forward in the study of rocks. Being keenly interested in microscopic forms of life, he wished to determine their importance as constituents of rocks. Using a microscope magnifying 300 diameters, he showed the presence of organisms in flint and limestone, and found in 1838 that a thin slice of chalk coated over with the Canada balsam became practically transparent. In his Microgeology, published in 1854, he gives drawings of thin sections of several flints, seen by transmitted light, which are thus rock sections in the modern petrological sense. His method could not have been generally known until his book appeared in 1854. Meanwhile, Henry Clifton Sorby, about 1845, found the naturalist W.C. Williams making thin sections of fossil plants and bones. He promptly perceived the importance of the method as applied to rocks in general and introduced it to the Geological Society of London in 1850 in a paper on the calcareous grit of Scarborough. Seven years later, he read his memorable paper on the microscopial structure of crystals in which he made use of slices of granite and of Vesuvian and other lavas. Ferdinand von Zirkel met Sorby by chance at Bonn in 1862, and learning his methods, proceeded to systematise the examination of rock specimens with the microscope. Such studies, rapidly appreciated by Michael Levy, Judd and others, naturally led to advances of the first importance in petrology. They enabled workers to ascertain the relations of the rock constituents, one to another, and the order of consolidation of minerals from an ingenious magma. The rocks styled metamorphic still afford the greatest difficulty, even after prolonged inquiry in the field. Seeing that some rocks are merely massive minerals, that is, large masses formed of one mineral species, while others consist of crystals or fragments of a variety of minerals. 
it may be well to remind ourselves of the distinction between minerals and rocks. We may define a mineral as a natural substance formed by inorganic action. Its chemical composition is constant. Under favourable circumstances, it assumes a characteristic crystalline form. Like all definitions of natural objects, the above requires some qualification. In many cases, the chemical composition of a mineral varies by a well-defined series of atomic replacements, and we cannot feel called upon to themselves a new species for every step away from the rigid type. Sodium thus replaces potassium, to some extent, in orthoclase felspar. The crystalline form, again, may not be specifically characteristic, as for instance in the members of the Garnet series, which crystallize in the cubic system. The homogeneity of molecular structure throughout the individual may be regarded as the most essential feature of what we style a mineral species. That is to say, the molecules contain the same elements in the same proportions and are arranged on the same physical plan. A rock, on the other hand, is a mere aggregate of mineral particles or of molecules that, under proper conditions, would group themselves to form mineral species. It may consist entirely of granules or crystals of one species, but the structures in these have no common orientation, as they would have in a single large continuous crystal. The rock itself has no crystalline form, and any structures that simulate such forms will be found on measurement to have none of the regularity that characterizes genuine crystals. A rock, moreover, formed of several mineral species, in association will by no means possess a constant chemical composition, and the variations from point to point form a feature of a special interest in the study of igneous masses of sediments deposited on a shore or of alluvium in a valley stretching far between the hills. In the pages that follow, we hope then to bear in mind the relations of rocks to the earth and to ourselves. Like the ancient Romans, we build our cities with huge blocks and slabs brought from crystalline masses overseas. We now tunnel for our commercial highways through the complex cores of mountain chains. Everywhere, rocks are our foundations, throughout our travels or in our settled homes. They rise as obstacles against us, or they spread before us fields of fertile soil. Some knowledge of them is part of the general body of culture that makes us, in the best sense, citizens of the world. The term limestone covers, by common consent, rocks consisting mainly of calcium carbonate, dolomite, 
in which half or nearly half the molecules consist of magnesium carbonate, is, however, generally included. The convenience of limestones as building materials has given them a worldwide interest. Their stratified and jointed structure appealed to the early Egyptian architect when he sought blocks for his pyramids. The ease with which limestones could be carved, combined with a reasonable resistance to decay, gave them a preeminence with the designers of our rich cathedrals. The Romans found in the stained and altered varieties colour schemes for basilicas and baths, and their luxurious taste in limestone has been inherited by the modern builders of hotels. The rock suffers, however, from its solubility in water, containing even a mild acid. In the gases dissolved by rainwater from the atmosphere, carbon dioxide assumes a far larger proportion than that which it possesses in the air itself. The surface of limestone slabs becomes in consequence pitted and corroded by every rain that falls. The sulfuric acid in the air of modern coal-consuming cities is, however, still more deadly in its action. J. A. Howe, in his recent work on building stones, is of opinion that limestone is unsuitable for towns. Limestones may broadly be recognised by their solubility in cold, dilute acids, with brisk evolution of carbon dioxide. Dolomitic varieties require hot acid. Limestones divide themselves into types produced by chemical precipitation and those due to the accumulation of the hard parts of organisms. But in many of the latter types, chemical precipitation also plays a part. Organic action, moreover, frequently promotes the deposition of the chemical types. Detrital limestones, that is, limestones formed from the debris of all the ones, are comparatively unimportant. They occur in certain zones of the chalk and of the carboniferous limestone in our islands, and record the breaking up in shallow water of beds that had already become consolidated. The Miocene conglomerates of the north side of the Swiss Alps are often formed of pebbles of the far older Mesozoic limestones, Similar conglomerates cemented by calcium carbonate are now being formed in the riverbeds of the limestone Kartzland. Limestone, however, as a rule, goes to pieces before the buffeting sustained by mixed rocks on a shore, even if it survives for a time in gravels, percolating waters ultimately dissolve it, and only a porous skeleton formed of its impurities, remains. Though calcium carbonate is far less soluble than calcium sulfate, large quantities are carried invisibly, 
owing to the presence of carbon dioxide in river waters and thus accumulate in inland seas that have no outlet except by evaporation. Here, calcareous tufa may be deposited as a crust upon the shores and on the growing islets as the water shrinks away and before the more soluble gypsum and rock salts can separate out. Hot springs of volcanic origin, like the sprudel of Carlsbad in Bohemia, may deposit calcium carbonate as the water cools, and is relieved from pressure. At Carlsbad, little grains of granite, or of the minerals of granite, serve as centres, and encrusting layers are formed round them, until pea-like bodies are produced. These become cemented together, giving rise to the well-known freshwater limestone or rowstone. On the shores of the Great Salt Lake of Utah, calcareous tufa occurs also in the form of grains resembling little eggs. These are the oolitic grains that were first known as constituents of fossil limestones. The calcium carbonate of oolitic grains at Carlsbad from the Great Salt Lake and from the sea is deposited in a form that gives the reaction when boiled in cobalt nitrate. A. Lacroix, however, finds that the material at Carlsbad has a specific gravity lower than that of calcite, and its double refraction is also distinctly weaker. He has called this form of calcium carbonate katipi. Travertine is a tufa laid down on twigs and other vegetation, where springs emerge laden with calcium carbonate. In a massive form, it builds tufa basins, as in the mammoth hot springs of the Yellowstone Park. Both here and at Carlsbad, it appears that vegetation of humble type, multiplying under warm conditions, materially assists the deposit by withdrawing carbon dioxide from the water. The unstable calcium bicarbonate is thus converted into the carbonate, which is thrown down as a quickly increasing crust. Among the limestone regions of the Dinaric Alps, calcareous tufus or travertines, laid down by ordinary streams, form massive beds that tend to choke the hollows of the hills. The basin of Jadza in Bosnia is thus partially filled up, and the town is built on minerals brought in solution from the mountains. The modern waters are still adding to this deposit, and Katzer has pointed out that the falls of the Pliva are prevented from cutting their way down to the level of Rabas Ravine, into which they plunge, by the mass of tufa which they build up in their own course. Another type of limestone deposited from solution is of considerable interest in arid lands, or lands with only a seasonal rainfall, where evaporation goes on steadily at the surface, 
while water is brought up by capillary action from below. Calcium carbonate may form a cement to the soil or to the crumbling rock near the surface and a solid calc tufa may rise from continued transference of matter in solution from the lower levels. In the Cape of Good Hope, such formations are conspicuous. Ammonium carbonate, again, derived from the decay of organisms, or sodium carbonate, will precipitate calcium carbonate as arrogonate from the calcium sulfate and chloride, but not from the calcium bicarbonate of salt water. Films of argonite are at present accumulating by this process on the floor of the Black Sea, and marine oolitic grains, also consisting of aragonite, are produced by the same reaction. For building purposes, the fine-grained oolites without large fossils are much sought after, since they can be trimmed equally in any desired direction. Before leaving the question of this inorganic deposition of limestone, we may note that R.A. Daly has suggested that the Precambrian and early Cambrian limestones were entirely products of chemical precipitation. He believes that the continental areas were at first relatively small, and that the abundance of decaying soft-bodied organisms on the sea floor led to a continuous precipitation of such calcium carbonate as was available. Hence the ocean was limeless, and it was only when continental land became more extended that a sufficient quantity of lime salts was brought in by rivers to counterbalance that thrown down by ammonium carbonate and sodium carbonate on the sea floor. Daly urges that, on this account, the earlier organisms could not form calcareous shells or skeletons, and he also believes that Precambrian and Cambrian limestones, even when unaltered, show no signs of having originated from fragmental organic remains. These limestones present an immense variety according to the nature of the originating organisms, and the amount of foreign material brought down into the water where they accumulated. The calcareous remains of Chara may form a white deposit on the floors of freshwater lakes. The part played by calcareous algae in the formation of marine limestones has long been recognised, but the detailed exploration in 1904 of the atoll of Funafuti in the Pacific showed that Halameda may be responsible for a considerable portion of an ordinary coral reef. Animal, not vegetable activity, however, is responsible for the majority of our limestones, and the humble organisms, for reason of their abundance, play a prominent part in rock formation. Analogies between the globinus of deep waters and the groundwork of the soft white limestone known as chalk have been freely pointed out. 
Early in the 19th century, Ehrenberg, in a series of researches with the microscope, proved the organic origin of the compact ground of marine limestones. The Miller line types, often with a surface like that of glazed porcelain, are common in the sandy beds formed near a coast. Few rocks are more fascinating under the microscope than those in which such types are seen in section, associated with detrital grains of quartz, washed down from the ground, and perhaps with bright green grains of the marine mineral. In Ireland, white chalks occur, speckled throughout with glossinite, which looks dark in the rock mass, but which reveals its green tint when streaked out by the hammer. When formed still farther from land, pure chalk arises from the consolidation of foraminiferal ooze, and the probable depth in which it accumulated must be judged from the nature of the associated organisms. A white limestone may, however, arise in a comparatively shallow sea, where the rivers bring down little solid matter from the land. A coast formed of pure limestone, with clear streams flowing from a land of similar rock behind, may allow of the development of pure limestone on its shores. It is generally agreed that the upper chalk of the British Isles and of northern France was laid down in water 1,000 fathoms or more in depth. Yet the corresponding white limestone of Northern Ireland in places follows rapidly. There are two epochs of the Earth's history in which foraminifera were remarkable for their size as well as their abundance. The first gave us the grey Fusilina limestone of upper Carboniferous times, when this spindled-shaped shell spread freely from the United States through the Arctic regions to the east of Asia. The second gave us the Eocene period, the great beds formed of the Numulides and Orobites, which we meet with in Europe on the Lake of Thun, but which are far more important in Lower Egypt. The disc-like forms of the Numulides in the white limestone of the pyramids are familiar to the hundreds of travellers and forms are recorded up to four and a half inches across. And that concludes tonight's readings about rocks and their origins. I hope you're feeling a little tired and hopefully sleep like a rock tonight. If you're not quite tired yet, you're always welcome to listen to another episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast. In the meantime, I'll be working on bringing you another episode very soon. Good night.